Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session 15 of Sauron Defeated as we enter into the home stretch here, starting the drowning of Anadune tonight. Uh, so, again, yeah, welcome back. This week, of course, is the second week of our fall fundraising campaign. So I hope that you guys will remember Signum and, uh, uh, you know, you guys have been so faithful in years past. Uh, I just, uh, I hope that you will uh, keep us in mind as we, uh, uh, as we move forward into this year. I wanted to remind you as well of a couple things. Uh, so first of all, don't forget that we have a couple uh, events coming up. This, com- this coming weekend, I have my Lord of the Rings Online Marathon, which is traditional. And next Monday is... Uh, 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 really important, uh, uh, you know, one of the really big events uh, of the fundraising campaign, which is the State of the University Address, where I'm going to be explaining about the vision for the next phase of Signum University. Uh, where we're going from here? What's uh, what's uh, what directions are we going to grow? What's coming next? Uh, it's uh, going to be really exciting. So that is next Monday, October seventh at eight thirty p.m. Eastern Time. I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. You, of course, can get all the information about uh, all of our events that are coming up in the campaign, as well, of course, as uh, finding the links to make a donation to Signum University at our donation page that is uh, signumuniversity.org slash fund uh, you can you can find that um, and also uh, don't forget that we are doing our we are doing our asynchronous um, uh, drawing as well we're doing a special drawing uh, for those who have um, oh sorry I'm just noticing in my uh, in my uh, uh, camera, that door got left open. Anyway, uh, so we're doing our asynchronous drawing. Uh, so three of our donors, three of our of our supporters, who uh, uh, sort of you know mention the uh, the Mythgard Academy, uh, will win a drawing. So we're going to do a drawing among uh, among our donors. Um, on the last day of the campaign, on the campaign finale, which is on the 19th of October. Uh, and uh, to enter the drawing, all you have to do, make a donation of any kind. If you have a recurring donation, that counts. Send an email uh, to donate at signumu.org and, uh, and just mention that you want to be entered into the Mythgard Academy drawing. Uh, the three winners will all receive Anytime Audit uh, courses, so you can get access to the lecture uh, content of any course from our catalog that you choose. And then in addition, uh, the grand prize winner uh, will also get the privilege of adding... A, a uh, uh, adding a nomination, so you know, not just to make a nomination into the general pool, but to enter as a finalist. Uh, you can just add a add a book straight to the finalist pool uh, for uh, for our next election. Uh, so that's the grand prize uh, of our drawing. Uh, anyway, so I hope that you will. Uh, you will remember to do that. Just sort of another way for us to uh, show our gratitude to the people who, you know, the generous folks who support Signum uh, and, and enable us to uh, uh, to continue moving forward in exciting ways year after year. 
Um, we had our New England moot this past week, which was great. Tomas, good to see you here. Nice to meet you uh, at New England moot. There were several people from among our regulars uh, who were able to come to New England moot, which is awesome. Uh, and uh, looking forward to Middle moot uh, out in Iowa, which is happening next Saturday. Not this Saturday, but next Saturday, the 12th of October. Still time to register for that if you think you can make it down to Iowa. Uh, don't delay. If you, if you uh, sign up this week, we can make sure that we get you in for our lunch order and everything. Um, but of course, you're, you're still able to, um, you're still able to enter, uh, you know, to register even, uh, even next week. But, um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, let's see. Oh, so, you know, hey, Stephen, I'm to- now, you know, uh, Stephen asks, how would I feel about a brand new book? No one has read before as a nomination. And, hey, you know, I, I'm open. Uh, I'm uh, I'm open to all nominations. Uh, you know, I have to say a book no one else is familiar with is probably I mean, less likely to win the general election, of course. Um, but I would have no objection in principle uh, to a book of that kind. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now yeah, I'm game. I'm game. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. No, let's uh, let's see. Bring it on. I say. All right. Very good. Well, last week we got through the Notion Club papers. There was one last thing that I didn't get to, though, and that was. Um, uh, there was one uh, question uh, that got emailed uh, in that I wanted to kind of address, uh, but not fully. Um, so this is from Greg Nations. Uh, he sent this in saying, regarding the Notion Club papers, Charles E. Node writes, Discussions between Frankly and Jeremy hinted a way in which the past, as recalled by myth and legend, might have a reality of its own distinct from the true past, Different pasts in secondary planes or degrees can exist, and the line where one mythical past and the real past converged was the fall of Atlantis slash Numenor. Mr. Node thinks this idea could have saved Tolkien's flat world concept of the First and Second Ages, and that he didn't need to worry about restructuring the legendarium. The two versions could have allowed the cosmology of the Silmarillion to coexist with ours in a separate time stream. Is the Notion Club papers postulating that there can be two distinct paths, the historical and the mythical? Is that the point of the story? That that different pasts can exist and we can visit this mythological past via Raymer's method? This seems like a much bigger idea in many ways than necessarily coming up with alternative time travel mechanisms or with the explosion of myth into our primary world. There are many different concepts being dealt with in the Notion Club papers. Well, that's a that's an understatement. And is this concept of the historical line merging with the mythical line at the fall of Atlantis slash Numenor what Tolkien is really saying? Jeremy does set up this concept in part two of the story in response to something Frankly says. Perhaps, said Frankly, but that doesn't make such things as the Arthurian romance is real in the same way as true past events are real. I didn't say in the same way, said Jeremy. There are secondary planes or degrees. But that seemed to be all Tolkien really focused on it. Could you spend a little more time explaining and expanding on this particular concept, please? Well, a little bit. Uh, Two provisos that I would say. Proviso number one. 
I am not 100% sure that I understand what Raymer and Jeremy are talking about with their secondary planes and degrees. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> although I'm willing to spend a little time on it, I can't give what I don't got. So, uh, I, I'm, again, I'm really not 100% sure that I'm exactly understand. I mean, I, I get the, I believe I get the general idea. Um, but... But again, I'm not really certainly sure. I'm certainly not sure that I understand all the implications of it. One of the issues here, you know, thinking back to all the things that Raymer was talking about, and in particular, I think about the so there's like the waking mind and the dreaming mind, right? And then there's the contact with other creatures, right? Uh, like especially when he was thinking about the good and evil spirits, uh, but also when reaching out to the mind, like another mind, remote mind, right? Either remote in time or remote in space. But then there's also the process of like perceiving and the process of commun of of creating, right? Subcreating. Uh, that is like you know how the dreaming mind sometimes is perceiving things and sometimes is making stories of its own, right? So the way in which all of these different variables, waking, sleeping, perceiving, um, uh, perceiving that which is like perceiving landscape in a sense versus communicating with people, uh, perceiving that which is there, that is like the real uh, versus making up stories on its own. Again, there's so many different like ways in which all of these things combine that I, I, I can't at all really be sure that I get the implications of where Tolkien was going with that. Um, but, um, I mean, there certainly is that passage, uh, Greg, that you quoted there. Um, to me, the, the big question is, what exactly does Jeremy Meaner says, I didn't say in the same way? Right, that doesn't make such thing as the Arthurian romance is real in the same way as true past events are real. So if they're not real in that way, in exactly what way are they real? Secondary planes or degrees? Um, you know, is there? Is he suggesting that? So one of the things that I was getting from that section of the text was that. Jeremy and Raymer seem to be willing to call into question the basic assumption that, like, it's like with the Arthurian stuff, right? There's all the stories, right? There's all the romances about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and then there's what really happened, right? There's history, and then there's all of these stories. And one of the things that they that I thought they were implying is that those things are not necessarily as hierarchical as we might think. Right. That is, we tend, modern people tend to think that, you know, the historical truth, that's the one solid real thing. And the rest of it is ephemeral, right? The rest of it is just, it's made up, right? It's, it's just a story, right? Or deliberately to misuse an important word, it's just a myth, right? Um, and that, of course, I hope for you emphasizes the point Raymer, Jeremy, Tolkien, right, would not agree to calling something just a myth, right? So what is the real Arthurian story? Is, are the romances, is the Arthurian myth more, is, is it less real necessarily than the historical truth, like what actually occurred in history? 
I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. And that seems to me like it's, um, um, it's not real in the same way that the true past events are real, but that doesn't mean that there it's less, that, that it's not real. And I think also doesn't mean that it's less important necessarily, right? Um, the myth, the romances could be in a sense more important than what actually happened. And so, um, you know, being in contact with the myth, the stories, right, could actually give you a kind of access to the reality, like the sort of deeper mythical reality of the Arthurian world that, than even the actual historical events did, right? Um, so it's um, uh, tricky, as I say, um, and I'm as and I'm certainly not sure that I'm understanding all the implications of it. That's one implication that I was picking up on there. That uh, um, kind of a, a a calling into question um, the primacy of mere fact, right? That sometimes mere fact is not more important, not more significant, not more real in a sense uh, than the myth is, or the myth is real. It might be real in a different way, right? Uh, on, in some sense. And I don't understand what he means by secondary planes or degrees. I don't understand that because those two words, planes and degrees, that's not real common vocabulary, um, in this text, right? When we don't have, we don't have much to sort of anchor our concept of what a secondary plane or a secondary degree is. Um, I don't remember that terminology coming up often enough for me to really attach anything really clear to it. Um, so that's why I don't really understand what Jeremy means when he says there are secondary planes or degrees. Um, uh, but again, vaguely, I think um, that what he is saying is, although he is conceding, not real in the same way, uh, whatever he means by there are secondary planes or degrees, he seems to be suggesting there are different senses in which the romances are real also, right? Not in the same way, but in a different way. So anyhow, um, so much for the general point. As for the application to Tolkien's round and flat worlds, and Greg started his email by saying that, uh, you know, he knows we haven't really gotten to this yet, and we'll talk about it more uh, in Morgoth's Ring. Uh, and that is certainly true. We will talk about it more in Morgoth's Ring. So I don't want to get too far into the round and flat world thing here. We'll touch on it briefly in The Drowning of Anadune, but not uh, really in full. We'll wait till Morgoth's Ring to discuss that in full. Um as for whether or not, uh, uh, but just kind of looking for brief spoilers, Tolkien is going to have a bit of an artistic crisis about the whole flat earth thing um, and whether or not that really can fly. And he's going to consider changing that entire thing uh, very strongly consider changing that entire thing. We'll get into the details of that in Morgoth's ring, but um, could this, uh, you know, sort of real, past events and, uh, uh, you know, sort of romance or myth, could that uh, be a way, essentially, for him to kind of get at this, that no, that's not how it was historically, but that's how it was sort of mythically. Um, uh, well, no, I guess I, I would say no, I don't, th I mean, 
Could it conceivably be turned in that direction? Yes, I, I think so. But I don't think that's really the issue or I don't, I don't, I don't think it would really solve the problem that he was having. The problem that he was having um, is chiefly um, centers on... Again, I don't want to get too far into the details of this because we're not on Morgoth's ring yet. Um, But... Greg, I'm tempted to pull a Gandalf and be like, I can put it no plainer than to say, and then say something vague after I say that. Um, But we'll come back to this, I promise. Um, But the thing that I'm thinking is that what the real and what the myth is and how those two things are connected is is sort of confused, right? Again, with the Arthurian example, you've got like the historic, like there was presumably a dude, you know, uh, named Arthur or, you know, Ambrosius Aurelianus or, or whatever, whose actions in some sense inspired the stories, right? And then you have the stories and uh, the, you know, the different kind of reality that the myths of King Arthur establish, right? So you've got these, the myths of Arthur, and you've got the actual dude and what he in fact actually did, right? And those are the two different realities that are under discussion in those other places. Um, that's not really Tolkien's problem, exactly. Um, I mean, you could say it is in that he he was, um, you know looking at this mythic um at this mythic idea right of the flat world and the, the making of it uh, the, the 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 making of the round world right like the sort of mythic origin of the of the rounded world uh through the atlantis story right um and then you have the sort of prosaic historical well actually the world has always been round right um but that doesn't seem to me to be really what um, Tolkien is is juggling between is is really debating between when he's going to get around to debating this question um, again. Let's like with Arthur, you've got the historical Arthur and you've got the mythical Arthur, right? Um, and those two things are potentially in some sense in conflict with each other um, and have a different kind of reality. I don't think that the problem that he was having with the flat Earth is not going to be solved in that way because it doesn't map uh, in the same way. Um, well, and partly the reason for this is that it's not exactly... Um, um, it's not exactly about history versus myth. It's about science, uh, really, more than history. So th- that's one of the things I think that's kind of for me, sort of throwing off the parallel here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Arthur Harrow says he thinks that he must uh, write a paper on, on uh, titled some dude named Arthur. I think that's a, I think it's a good idea, Arthur. Um, Yep. Yep. Oh, uh, yeah. Spoilers, Bruce, but I'm with you on that. Uh, I will, I will confess up front, uh, as a little fair warning. I am, uh, I am, I am, I am unfriends with Tolkien's impulse 
to uh, uh, ditch the the flat earth. As much as I dislike flat earth stories in general, uh, and I find them a little bit annoying, especially in uh, uh, especially in Narnia in some ways, actually. But whatever. Like I, I'm not a big fan of flat earth stories, uh, but nevertheless, I I am not with Tolkien in his rethinking uh, of that particular myth, uh, uh, as we'll see. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually. One of the, th- one of the things that we'll see when we get into the final, uh, you know, the final three volumes of the history of middle earth is, um, uh, we're, we're beginning to get into the part of Tolkien's life where I disagree with him more and more. Um, I uh, I don't really always see eye to eye with the older Tolkien when he's going back and and uh, kind of second guessing a bunch of the things that he wrote earlier on. Um, I've said several times, uh, uh, you know, that I uh, I strongly disagree with him about the Hobbit, um, but that's a subject for another day. All right, but anyway, thank you, Greg, for the questions. Very interesting question, and then it'll come up again when we get there uh, in a few months. By the time we get to, it's the first, as if I'm remembering correctly, it's the first part. Uh, it's like the first section of Morgoth's Ring. So uh, by the end of January, probably, we'll, um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So in The Drowning of Anadune, we begin with what he calls uh, FN3, the, the third text of the Fall of Numenor. So you will remember back in the Lost Road, um, at the same time that he was writing the Lost Road, he he begins to work out the Numenor stuff. The first stories of Numenor were really emerging at that same time, um, and recall that uh, the Numenor stories were essentially. This is a an oversimplification, of course, but the Numenor the Numenor story was something like a sequel uh, to. The Silmarillion tradition proper, the 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 um, Quentin Olderinwa, um, all of that early, you know, the Book of Lost Tales stuff, the Quentin Olderinwa of 1930, uh, all of that early stuff was like the story of the first age. It was done, like you know, the War of Wrath was you know the end of the story, and what came next was simply the Dominion of Men, and it was not really at all clear what was supposed to have, you know, Tolkien didn't have any real concepts after that. So the idea of Numenor, when he began to take on um, uh, this story in the through the Lost Road, right? And he began to think about this story. Um, it, uh, it kind of began to take shape. And so we get a bit of, well, what happened next, right? What happened after uh, that last battle, after the beginning of the uh, decline of the firstborn and the dominion of men. So we get the story of Numenor and, of course, leading up to the Battle of the Last Alliance, right, which is really sort of the passing of the torch, right, when uh, uh, when the strength of men exceeds that of the firstborn, and uh, but they join together for that one last big fight. Um, you may remember... The way the the ways in which Tolkien was torn about Elrond's role here, right? How he wanted Elrond to be, you know, Elrond was the hinge of history, right? He was the his first job, first and foremost job was to be a descended from everybody, right? He was like the distillation of all of the bloodlines of all of the great stories of the first age, and then. 
uh, you know, that is to say of the elder days. And but then he survived. Right. So he was, you know, there to be the last living memory, carrying the memory of the elder days into the dominion of men as the first age dwindled. So that was Elrond's first job. And he definitely um, um, he definitely um, uh, wanted him to play that role. But then, of course, once the idea of Numenor came along, he also really wanted Elrond uh, to be the king of the Numenorians, right? The first king of Numenor. Uh, and, you know, we saw him write the story in both ways, right? One with Elrond as the uh, the 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 remain you know the leader of the elves remaining in 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 the great lands and then another with him being uh, the king of Numenor so of course how does he solve the problem he clones him he literally clones him right uh, gives him a twin Elros and so one uh, one version of Elrond can be the king of Numenor and the other version of Elrond uh, can be the last of the firstborn uh, you know transitioning into the new world um. So this first text that we get in The Drowning of Anaduna, and I'm sure glad that Christopher did that because uh, I'd have had to surely go back and reread more carefully uh, the earlier versions if he hadn't, um, uh, is to give this third text, which he didn't give in full before. It's sort of the latest version of that earlier stuff. So this stuff that we're about to read, Tolkien wrote well before, right? So the, and and the, the thing, I, again, the thing I want to emphasize is the role that it plays. This is pre-Notion Club papers, right? So he's not done that. Uh, the the full growth of the Atlantis myth, the way that that Numenor and the Atlantis myth are being brought together more more consciously here, um, has not yet really fully taken place. Uh, again, it's not absent completely, but um, the you know the development of the ideas that we have seen through the Notion Club papers hasn't yet happened. Um, so this is sort of the final version of the Numenor story when the Numenor story was just sort of that sequel uh, to what happened in the Elder Days. Um, okay, so then of course we'll get to the Drowning of Anadune, uh, which is much different. So I've got a lot of slides tonight, but I want to go through them fairly quickly. We're familiar with this story. Um, I just want to look at some of the ways, and you know, this is sort of establishing our baseline, right? What this this version of the Numenor story is essentially this is where the Numenor story stood before the Notion Club papers, right? Then he does the Notion Club papers, and as he's doing the Notion Club papers, and after he does them, he writes this new thing called the Drowning of Anadune, right? So I want to look to be able to compare and contrast the before and after, essentially. Okay, so starting the before. In the great battle, when Fionwe, son of Manwe, overthrew Morgoth, the three houses of the men of Beleriand were friends and allies of the elves, and they wrought many deeds of valor. But men of other kindreds turned to evil and fought for Morgoth, and after the victory of the lords of the west, those that were not destroyed fled back east into Middle-earth. There many of their race wandered still in the unharvested lands, wild and lawless, refusing the summons alike of Fionwe and of Morgoth to aid them in their war. And the evil men who had served Morgoth became their masters, and the creatures of Morgoth that escaped from the ruin of Thangorodrim came among them and cast over them a shadow of fear. For the gods, changed to Valar, forsook for a time the men of Middle-earth who had refused their summons, and had taken the friends of Morgoth to be their lords, and men were troubled by many evil things that Morgoth had devised in the days of his dominion, demons and dragons and ill-shapen beasts, and the unclean orcs that are mockeries of the children of Iluvatar, and the lot of men was unhappy. 
Okay, so here's the lot of men in Middle-earth, uh, and they are being oppressed by all of these evil things. Notice a few things, right? We can tell we're still back in the earlier versions of the mythology here. Notice Fionwe, uh, who will later be Aonwe, right, uh, is uh, still the son of Manwe. So we're, you know, the Valar are still, are still uh, procreating here in this stage. Um, so we have... These men, there are evil men who are serving Morgoth, right? Um, but there's a lot of these men which merely flee, right? And don't come to either side. Um, and um, uh, and are running amok, but no, well, run, running amok, running for cover is what they're doing. Um, but the men uh, of Morgoth, right? Uh, the men, evil men who had served Morgoth become their masters, Right, they come and dominate them. Um, notice the sort of parallel here. At least there seems to be a kind of parallel. Um, I'm not sure if it's intended as a parallel by Tolkien, or if it's just a kind of uninteresting uh, repetition of a, of, a, of a pattern. But doesn't this sound a little bit like sort of the inverse of what we see among the elves? Right, how like you know the Noldor and the Sindar flee from Beleriand and go into the east of Middle Earth, and what happens when they get there? Like they generally find themselves as like the lords of kingdom of the kingdoms of the lesser elves, right? Like Thranduil among the elves of Mirkwood, like Galadriel among the Galathrim, right? Um, that's a pattern that we see, you know, these greater ones who come back from the West, having been elevated by their contact with those to the far West and come back among their, uh, their, you know, their, 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 their relatives who have been living in the shadows, uh, in the East of Middle Earth, um, and come, become accepted among them as Lords, right? Except it generally happened, you know, in a good way with the elves and seems to have generally happened in a bad way. Uh, by the men, um, as it was all the evil men who have been elevated by their contact with Morgoth. Not improved, morally, right? Um, but have been increased in power, it seems, as they go among the rest of the men of Middle-earth and dominate them and and, uh, and uh, become their masters. Um, one of the things that I cannot help but... Um, one of the things that I cannot help but reflect on here is that Numenor it's not 100% obvious that it's a good idea from the beginning right we've seen in the Silmarillion the Valar make a mistake Tolkien was even more explicit about that in the older versions like in the Book of Lost Tales version of the thing um uh, Tolkien was even more explicit about the fact that in inviting the elves to come to Valinor and to leave Middle-earth behind, um, they, the Valar, made a mistake. They shouldn't have done that. It wasn't the way things were meant to be. Um, it isn't how things should have gone. Um, so that's, again, that's Tolkien is fairly clear about that. Do the Valar screw up again when they invite the Numenorians out? Should you know, the faithful among the men also have been dispersing themselves among the people of Middle-earth? Would the lot of men have been less unhappy had they been, again, dispersed among Middle-earth rather than gathered together and sequestered off in their happy little island in the West? Um, maybe. Maybe so. Um, 
And Matthew, you're absolutely right that former servants of Morgoth would also be more interested in dominating others, no question, right? You know, so there's, uh, uh, they have not only the power, but the inclination, right, to become masters among the others. Um, yes, yes. Um, but of course, we also have those evil things. Now, Arthur was wondering about the demons, uh, you know, that, uh, what about these evil things? Um Demons, I, so, I mean, that could be leftover Balrogs, of course. It's conceivable. I, I sort of suspect that that's a little bit more uh, of a general word. Right? I mean, this list does not sound extremely precise, right? Demons, dragons, ill-shapen beasts, and the unclean orcs. Uh, the ill-shapen beasts, in particular, seems a pretty generous category. Right, and I wonder how uh, how generous demons might be too. Balrog certainly would fit in that category, but are they the only ones that would fit in that category? Um, that's less certain to me. I mean, even just think back to Sauron and his uh, necromancy, right? When he was through the sorcerer, um, you know, there are I think other things that could qualify as. Uh, uh, in that general category of demons that are tr- troubling the earth and making uh, a lot of men unhappy. Um, yeah, good, Tomas, the offspring, the offspring of Ungoliant. Where do they fit? Demons are ill-shapen beasts, right? A little bit of both, right? Demon meets ill-shapen beast. Yeah, again, as I say, I, this sounds like a fairly... This is a list not designed to be a complete list of the dangers that they faced, but rather a list designed to help us imagine all the different kinds of horrors uh, that they were that they were facing. Um, yeah, that seems to me that seems to me very reasonable. Um, Marilyn was asking, "What does unclean mean in this context?" The unclean orcs. That's a really uh, that's a really good question. Um, the unclean orcs that are mockeries of the children of Iluvatar. That's, that's what makes them unclean. Um, keep in mind, just as Fionwe is still the son of Manwe, so the orcs are still mockeries of the creatures of Iluvatar. That is, we are still in the period of time when the or- when in, in, in Tolkien's imagination, I mean, when the orcs are manufactured by Morgoth, not corrupted. Right, so these are not elves who have been corrupted. These are creatures that uh, that uh, Morgoth has manufactured by hand, um, as a mockery of the children of Iluvatar. He's made his own little children, right, um, and animated them with his hatred and his malice, filled them with his hatred and his malice. Um, Tolkien had not yet rejected that idea, um, so. Um, it is uh, it is also possible, Arthur, that he means they're not kosher, right? Uh, so yes, uh, absolutely, uh, 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 orcs should certainly be left off the dietary lists. Um, but um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but anyway, no, I mean, so I think Marilyn, in that sense, unclean. They are they are an abomination by their very being, right? In a way that even the demons are not. Right. I mean, what are the demons? Like, what are the Balrogs? What is what was Ungoliant? Right. Those are are being spiritual beings like the Valar are spiritual beings who have made bad choices. Right. And they're they're You know, they have turned to evil. There's no it's not uh, not to, to utter a defense of them. Right. But it, but there is a sense in which they are not even they are not unclean. They've they've made bad choices right there. They are definitely headed down the wrong path. And yet. Um, they are not themselves this abominable, 
uh, mockery of Iluvatar's creation, right? They are a corruption of Iluvatar's creation, not a mockery of it. And so in that sense, the orcs are unclean. Um, okay, um, so let's keep going. A land was made for them to, to dwell. Sorry, I had a typo here. A land was made for them to dwell in, neither part of Middle-earth nor of Valinor, for it was sundered from either side by a wide sea, yet it was nearer to Valinor, for it was sundered from either side by a wide sea. Oh, wait, no, I already said that. Nearer to Valinor. For, uh, it was raised by Ose out of the depths of the great water, and it was established by Aule and enriched by Yavanna. And the Eldar brought thither flowers and fountains out of Avalon, and they wrought gardens there of great beauty, in which at times the children of the gods, changed to Valar, would walk. That land the Valar called Andor, the land of gift. And by its own folk it was at first called Vinya, the young. But in the days of its pride they named it Numenor, that is, Westerness, for it lay west of all lands inhabited by the mortals. Yet it was far from the true west, for that is Valinor, the land of the gods. But the glory of Numenor was thrown down, changed to overthrown, and its name perished. And after its ruin, it was named in the legends of those that fled from it, Atalanta, the downfallen. Um, okay, so we have the gift of uh, the gift of Andor. One of the things that is emphasized here, which does not get emphasized. No, first of all, sorry. One side note before I begin that. Um, one of the things that you'll see as we're talking both about this latest version of the fall of Numenor, that is the early material, and the first version of the drowning of Anadune, the new material, um, is that different parts of the Akalabath, if you, if you know the Akalabath really well from the, from the published Silmarillion, you'll be able to see which parts came from which, right? Different sections of these two different texts are going to sound very, very familiar, because between the two of these... We basically have almost the entire Akalabeth, right? Uh, we're not quite there yet, uh, but we're we can see almost all of the components. There's very very little that is in the published Akalabeth that does not have its source in either one of these two texts, right? Okay, so um, back to the point that I was going to make. Notice the significance of uh, of of Numenor. That is the name, Numenor. Yes, James, exactly. I don't. I also don't recall the name Numenor being described as prideful, but as soon as he says that in this context, it certainly makes sense, right? They called it Andor, Vinya, right? But in the days of its pride, they named it Numenor, that is, Westerness, because it lay west of all lands inhabited by mortals. Now, that might sound kind of neutral enough. I mean... It's true, right? It's fairly westerly compared to the rest of... Uh, so it you know, kind of seems like, we are the land in the west. Doesn't exactly seem like a super, you know, arrogant way to describe yourself, right? It kind of... I always took it to be, if anything, a little disappointingly pedestrian, right? Like, you know, surely they could have come up with a more creative name from their land than, like, that island which is to the west of you, which is kind of how I always read that, right? But in this context... Obviously, it means more than that, right? Because for them to say, we are Westerness, right? We are the Western lands. Um, 
okay, compared to Middle Earth, but you are the Eastern lands compared to the true West. You are not the true West. You're fooling yourself if you think you're the true West. Or if you're, so what are you trying to do? Are you trying to lump yourself in with the true West, right? The true West starts here. This is the beginning. This is the, this is the, 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 you've just crossed the boundary of the true West. We are the frontier of the true West, right? That could be one way uh, to understand that. But of course, increasingly, as that pride grows, it could actually be seen um, as a uh, uh, as a rivalry, right? Um, well, maybe we're not the true West, but we're the real West, right? Uh, that um, that sense seems to be uh, what the connection with pride seems to get at, right? Um, you can call us Numenore. Thank you very much. Right. Um, because we're 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 the West. Right. Uh, again, first lump us in with them and then forget about them. Look at us instead. We are we are the real West. Um, Stephen, great question. Why was thrown down changed to overthrown? Uh, he says, does thrown down suggest too much of a contest between equals as opposed to divine judgment? Um, not necessarily, I think. Um I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I can't guess exactly what was in his head there, but trying to think of the difference between those two things. Thrown down. um, Overthrown is a little broader, right? Um, Thrown down is a more spatial metaphor, right? Um... A king can be overthrown without being thrown down, like literally dumped on his face, right? Numenor is going to get thrown down, like cast into the abyss, right? But of course, its pride is going to be overthrown. It's going to be, so. I mean, it's going to be overthrown metaphorically as well as literally, right? And I think that thrown down, I mean, in my years anyway, thrown down is a little bit more about the literal. It's not that it can't be used figuratively as well. Of course it can be. Um, but perhaps, but the glory of Numenor was thrown down and its name perished uh, merely uh, sort of suggests too much the, uh, as if that sentence is only about the destruction of the island. Um, yeah, more directional, Bruce. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not at all saying that I think that that's, uh, um, you know, what was in Tolkien's head, but that's, that's what, to me, that's, that's feels like the main distinction between those two things. Um, yeah, Bruce says laundry can be thrown down the chute. Yes. Yes. Uh, whereas, uh, very, uh, though, though some might have been overthrown by their laundry, few, I think have overthrown the laundry, um, it would uh, it would be a mighty triumph indeed uh, to use the word overthrow uh, in relationship to your laundry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, all right. Let's keep going. Oop. Okay. Now Elrond and Elros his brother were descended from the line of both Hador and of Beor, fathers of men, and in part also from both the Eldar and the Valar. For Idril and Luthien, daughter of Melian, were their foremothers. None others among men of the Elder Days had kinship with the elves, and therefore they were called half-elven. 
The valor indeed may not withdraw the gift of death, which cometh to men from Iluvatar, but in the matter of the half-elven, Iluvatar gave them judgment. And this they judged. Choice should be given to the brethren. And Elrond chose to remain with the firstborn, and to him the life of the firstborn was given. Yet a grace was added that, cho- that, choice, was, that choice was never annulled. And while the world lasted, he might return, if he would, to mortal men and die. Okay. Um, so we have there um, the, the, the reassertion of the whole genealogical significance of Elrond and Elros both, right? Um, and how they're related to everybody. And then we have the choice of the half-elven, right? Um, And Christopher is particularly disturbed by this one sentence. He talks about it several times with great shock, right? That nowhere else in any of his writings does Tolkien suggest this bit about the added grace that is given to Elrond. Um, that his choice was never annulled, that he could, he might return if he would to mortal men and die. His choice, Elros's choice, is for keeps, right? No backsies for Elros, but Elrond can still st- can still, uh, you know, opt out of his contract later on if he wants to. Um, I'm not sure about that. So Arthur. Uh, of course, Elrond's kids are not really an issue yet, right? Um, I mean, he doesn't even get a daughter until the Lord of the Rings is almost completely done, as we saw. So, you know, the choice of the half-elven, the choice of Elrond's kids, um, I I still kind of hate the business with Elros. With Elro here and Eladon, um, I don't. It doesn't make a lick of sense to me that um, they should have a choice. I mean, Elros's kids don't have a choice, right? Again, <laughs> Elros gets no backsies on his choice, and I wonder, Arthur, if um, the question because he does entertain that idea—that idea that Eladon and Elro here also have a choice. Um, Arwen, of course, we know has a choice, but hers is a different kind of... Hers is the choice of, Lu, choice of Luthien, as Luthien says, right? Not just... Uh, she's not... When she says mine is the choice of Luthien, she's not just saying, well, you know, all of us in our family can choose, and, and so I'm going to choose like Luthien chose, right? I'm, I'm going to make the same choice that Luthien chose. Um, I don't think that that is just what's going on there. But anyway, like I said, I'm not a fan at all. Uh, of uh, Tolkien wanting to give that choice to Eladon and Elro here. But, so it does come up later, Arthur. It's not an issue here because uh, we don't have any kids of Elrond yet to uh, uh, create a fuss about. But I really do think that there is um, a connection here. Uh, I can't help but wonder, you know, how many times does Tolkien, you know, ditch something just because he changes it, right? Um you know, did this special grace, you know, this added grace that was this choice that was never annulled, did that get put in that drawer, right? And then, you know, when Elrond does have kids later on, he pulls it back out again. 
um, are we seeing some kind of manifestation of that same um, of that same special grace? Uh, maybe I don't know. Um, <laughs> Bruce says, "Does that imply that the choice of men is the better choice?" So Elrond gets another chance at it. Um, yeah, that's right. Okay, all right, Elrond, you can choose whichever one you want. Firstborn. Hmm. We'll give you some time to... Are you sure about that answer, Elrond? We'll give you some more time just to make sure you don't want to make a different choice there than the one you made. Right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, uh, yeah, good, Stephen. Yeah, you're were, you were suggesting the same thing. Uh, mortality is actually the correct option, so he's given extra time. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. Um, uh yeah. Um, death is a gift, Marilyn. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, that's definitely, that's definitely there. Um, uh, yeah. And Michelle, I do think that in part he's picking up on the idea when Arwen comes around again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that kind of comes around. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It's a funny idea, but I don't think he's really implying that like Elrond chose poorly. Right. Uh, and Elros was the one who knew, um, I, I mean, I can't imagine that that's the case, uh, again, especially since, again, it's like the whole origin of Elrond's character, right? It's like, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say the whole point of Elrond's character uh, is that he is, you know, the bridge between the firstborn of the Elder Days and the the later world, right? I mean, that's, um, uh, again, that sort of seems to me to be the point of Elrond's character from the beginning. It's a little hard for me to imagine these coming around being like, Elrond really should have chosen, you know, humans. So let's give him another crack. Uh, like that, um, that seems to me hard to believe. Um, it is possible, Margaret, as you said, he declared himself an elf and that means he needs a long time to make a decision. <laughs> So he chooses to be a member of the firstborn, and so therefore he can say both no and yes thereafter. <laughs> I mean, you know, I like that. Um, but I mean, it doesn't sound like he's not just given a longer time to decide. He's given an opportunity to return, right? He's given an opportunity to change his mind, to go back. If he wants to. Uh, and I guess, of course, El- Elros doesn't get that much time, right? I mean, you know, he lives for uh, several hundred years, but, uh, you know, still. Um, anyway. So, jokes aside, what do I think is the purpose of that? What is the function of that addition, of the added grace? Um, what does the added grace to Elrond add to the story? Exactly. And my answer to that is, let's see, what's my answer to that? My answer to that is, it adds, it adds significance to his choice. I mean, he isn't going to choose that, right? Um, I mean, I don't think he's ever going to choose that. And I don't just say that from a post Lord of the Rings standpoint, even in the, there's, um, you know, this might be an unusual moment here, and if this is an unusual moment, maybe, you know, who knows, a version of the story in which Elrond does choose to become mortal is forthcoming. But based on everything we've seen, Elrond never has made that choice, right? So therefore, I 
can't imagine, based on the evidence that we've seen, that he's providing Elrond this choice in order to enable Elrond to take it, the option, right? Rather, it seems to me that if he's giving him the option, the purpose of the option is to emphasize how he's not going to take it, right? Um, because, again, we don't... Um, uh, we don't... Because uh, we, we know he's not going to... He's not going to take it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's still kind of weird. It's still kind of weird in every way. <laughs> the more I think about it, the weirder it keeps getting. Because, okay, so he's fourth, you know, so, so he's staunch in uh, continuing to choose the firstborn. Well, versus what? Boredom? You know? Grief, I suppose, over time? I mean, goodness knows, knowing the future of Elrond's history, he's going to have plenty to grieve over, but... um, (coughs) Sorry. It would be a little bit something more if the the opt-out clause were given to Elros, right? Okay, Elros, we'll let you... Oh, mortality? Great, that's fine. But, you know... Should you decide at a later date that immortality sounds like a keen idea to you, like, I don't know, when you're 495 and on death's door, um, then, you know, come back and we'll give you immortality then, right? Had that been the deal and Elros had been like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm going to accept the, uh, the, you know, the grace of men and leave the world. That would have been a, now that's a statement, right? Especially in the, you know, uh, context of the first king of the Numenorians. Um, uh, yeah. No, Stephen, I'm not saying that the Valar are giving him a choice specifically so that he won't choose it. I'm saying Tolkien is giving him a choice so that he, and and showing that he is specifically not going to choose it. I'm not saying the Valar are taunting him with the choice. Um they mean it. Why? I don't know, but they 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 mean it. They mean it as a grace like that he has the ability to choose at any time. Um but um uh but yeah, again, I think so. My question when I'm saying what is the purpose of it, I don't mean the purpose from the Valar's point of view. I mean the purpose from Tolkien's point of view, the purpose from the from the author's point of view. Um, what is what is the story that is established by giving him that choice, and we know he's not going to take it, right? Ba- I mean, based on everything we've seen, we know he's not going to take it. So that's that that that's what I mean by that. I hope that makes that a little bit clearer. Um, okay, so that's a little odd. The gods forbade them to sail beyond the Lonely Isle, and would not permit them to land in Valinor, for the Numenorians were mortal, and though the lords of the West had rewarded them with long life, they could not take from them the weariness of the world that cometh at last, and they died, even their kings of the seed of Arendel, and their span was brief in the eyes of the elves. And they began to murmur against this decree, and a great discontent grew among them. Their masters of knowledge sought unceasingly for secrets that should prolong their lives, and they sent spies to seek hidden lore in Avalon, and the gods were angered. Okay. Um, Oh, no, see, Arthur, they're allowed to go to Avalon. Avalon is cool. Um, What's... So, there's a ban, but the ban does not... They're... Forbidden to sail beyond the Lonely Isle, beyond Avalon, beyond Elvenholm, right? They can go to the Lonely Isle. Exactly. They just can't go past it. They can't go to Valinor itself. It is o- So the idea of the ban is there, but it's only Valinor that is banned 
to them. Um, so they're given this kind of free commerce with the elves, right? They can go and hang out with the elves if they want to in Elven home. Um, but, uh, the great discontent grows among them. Um, the Lords of the West cannot take from them the weariness of the world that cometh at last. Um, How far away from the shore of Valinor is Avalon? Oh, it's visible, plainly visible. Uh, that I think is true in every depiction of it. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, once the Lonely Island finally gets to the place where it's going to finally gets anchored to the bottom of the sea permanently, um, it's um, it's yeah, quite close. So yes, they can stand there and look at. I mean, Teniquitil is going to be like right there, right? They're going to be able to see that very clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, they're allowed to come quite close to Valinor. Uh, so the business about spies, they sent spies to seek hidden lore in Avalon and the gods were angered. Um, so what happens is they've been visiting the elves in Avalon the whole time. The only difference is that now they are coming with espionage, right? Now they are coming to Elvenholm, not in friendship, uh, not to, you know, commune with their friends, the elves, but to steal from them, right? Because they believe that the elves are withholding the secret uh, of immortality, right? And they are seeking to ferret out the secret of of immortality from them. Okay. Um, Wherefore, taking no counsel of the gods or of the elves. So this I've skipped a bit, right? Sauron has come. Um, and um, remember when Sauron comes here, he dominates the island almost right away. Uh, he comes in and he does his signs and wonders in the harbor. This is, remember all that, that material that we were looking at at the end of, uh, you know, that summary from, remember the, 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 um, the Tengwar pages, Right and the translation of the tenure pa- the the Tengwar pages that Christopher gave we went through those briefly at the end last time right we saw this like as soon as he lands in Numenor Sauron's performing signs and wonders and being taken in and uh, and uh, really kind of sweeps the people of Numenor most of them away very quickly uh, into his uh, into his party into his uh, you know under his sway. Uh, uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're getting there. Taking no counsel of the gods or of the elves, Tarkalion sent his messengers to Sauron and commanded him to come and do homage. And Sauron, being filled with malice and cunning, humbled himself and came. So there's no battle, right? Tarkalion doesn't go to Middle-earth. Um, he just summons him, uh, Sauron. And Sauron, being filled with malice and cunning, humbled himself and came, and he beguiled the Numenorians with signs and wonders. Little by little, Sauron turned their hearts towards Morgoth his master, and he prophesied to them and lied, saying that Morgoth would come again into the world. And Sauron spake to Tarkalion and to Tarilion his queen, and promised them life unending and the dominion of the earth if they would turn unto Morgoth. And they believed him and fell under the shadow. And the greater part of their people followed them. And Tarkalion raised a great temple to Morgoth upon the mountain of Iluvatar in the midst of the land. And Sauron dwelt there, and all Numenor was under his vigilance. Now, we see right after this the um, uh, second um, 
the second thoughts, right? As soon as he writes this, he crosses out, raised a great temple to Morgoth upon the mountain of Iluvatar, right? And remember, he changes it with the, 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 the story that he immediately revises it to is not that the, the temple is not built up on the, uh, the mountain of Iluvatar, right? It's not built in the sacred place. Instead, he builds it in the center of Numenos, right? He builds it in the center of, this, of, the, of the chief city, and he forbids anybody to go to the mountain of Iluvatar, right? It remains a sacred place. Sauron does not dare to go there, and he makes a law forbidding anybody to go there uh, and uh, uh, punishes by death anybody who tries and starts setting up his human sacrifices under his big black silver dome uh, in the temple of Morgoth in the middle of the main city, right? So he changes that soon. Um, but that that's this first version of the temple being actually on uh, the mountain, uh, comes first there. Um, yes, it is interesting that being filled with malice and cunning is the driving force behind why Sauron humbled himself. Yes, and certainly shows that as he is beguiling the Numenorians, he is uh, showing inauthentic humility here, right? It's just a sham. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Arthur, it is an interesting difference between the summoning of Sauron and uh, the utter defeat of Sauron by the Numenorians, right? Um, yes. And Bruce, you're absolutely right that Sauron being filled with malice and cunning, uh, especially the cunning bit, right, does echo the serpent in Genesis 3. And certainly we can see uh, uh, some parallels to the shape of that story here, right, um, with the this other recapitulation of the fall. Therefore, at his command, the Numenorians made a great armament, and their might and skill had grown exceedingly in those days, for they had in these matters the aid of Sauron. The fleets of the Numenorians were like a land of many islands, and their masts were like a forest of mountain trees, and their banners like the streamers of a thunderstorm, and their sails were scarlet and black. And they moved slowly into the west, for all the winds were stilled, and all the world was silent in the fear of that time." And they encompassed Avalon, and it is said that the elves mourned, and sickness came upon them, for the light of Valinor was cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians. Then Tarkalion assailed the shores of Valinor, and he cast forth bolts of thunder, and fire came upon Tuna, and flame and smoke rose about Tiniquitil. I don't understand what this is describing, I have to admit. Um, you may remember, again, from the Lost Road material when he was doing the very first drafts of the Fall of Numenor, um, he was toying originally, again, in the earlier drafts of this very document, with um, a very significantly greater technological advancement by the Numenorians, right? Um, that the Numenorians had planes and artillery, right? Um, so when they attacked, like, so the Numenorians basically come and start shelling Valinor at the end. Um, and that's why in particular, it's the flying ships of the, uh, of the Numenorians, which blocks out the sky Right, And we seem to be remembering this. The elves mourned and sickness came upon them, for the light of Valinor was cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians. How would it be if they were all just on boats 
I mean, okay, the boats can be really tall, but I don't care how tall your boats are. They're not going to keep the sun off an island, uh, you know, a mile away, right? Um, I mean, you know, maybe briefly at sunset, right? But not as a general thing, right? So does this mean that the Numenorians are flying, right? That they have flying ships here? It, the rest of it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like they're sailing and, you know, the wind is not there and so they're rowing, right? Um, but uh, again, it, we're not far removed chronologically in Tolkien's writing. We're not far removed from the days when... Uh, um, we're not far removed from the days when um, uh, the... Um, when the, the Numenorians had bombs and the internal combustion engine and planes and everything else. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bruce, I, I certainly agree that it would be, uh, it would be a, a very much on the nose parable of the arrogance of modern man. Yeah, mm-hmm, it would. But again, that, and, and that may well be Bruce, part of the reason why he moved away from that so quickly. Right. Um, uh, it, died pretty quickly. I mean, by the second draft, as I recall, of the fall of Numenor, that was gone. And yet, the casting forth of bolts of thunder and fire coming upon Tuna and uh, sort of does sound like he's shelling it, actually. Um, he, Tarkalian, I mean. Um, and if they're not flying, again, I don't know how to understand that line, the light of Valinor was cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians. Um, it is possible, maybe there's... Um, Maybe they, they are steamships, right? Or, you know, maybe there's smoke here. Um, yeah, it is very possible. Um, why bolts of thunder versus bolts of lightning, Rachel? Well, the one answer that immediately suggests itself is, again, bolts of thunder is kind of a better description of cannon fire, right, than bolts of lightning. Um, again, if that is indeed what he's uh, what he's describing. Um, so yeah, uh, it could well be that there's something, you know, the smoke of their attack, perhaps. Um, so again, not a hundred percent sure exactly what's being described here, but I have to admit it sounds suspicious, but the gods made no answer. Then the vanguard of the Numenorians set foot upon the forbidden shores and they encamped in might upon the borders of Valinor. But the heart of Manwe was sorrowful and dismayed, and he called upon Iluvatar and took power and counsel from the Maker, and the fate and fashion of the world was changed. The silence of the gods was broken and their power made manifest, and Valinor was sundered from the earth, and a rift appeared in the midst of the great sea, east of Avalon. Into this chasm the great sea plunged, and the noise of the falling waters filled all the earth, and the smoke of the cataracts rose above the tops of the everlasting mountains. But all the ships of Numenor that were west of Avalon were drawn down into the abyss, and they were drowned. And Tarkalian the Golden, and bright Ilion his queen, fell like stars into the dark, and they perished out of all knowledge. But the mortal warriors that had set foot upon the lands of the gods were buried under fallen hills. There, it is said, they lie imprisoned in the caves of the Forgotten until the day of doom and the last battle. Yeah, Bruce, it is possible that the line about the uh, the light of uh, Valinor being cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians 
could be simply metaphorical. Um, you know, the army of the Numenorians coming between them and Valinor, you know, casts this oppression of gloom upon them. Uh, and, you know, they are in despair and their joy passes something along those lines. That's possible. That's possible. Again, I just can't help but think in more literal rather than figurative ways, simply because, again, like we saw that with the Numenorians before, Tolkien seemed to drop it. But did he? You know, maybe he did or maybe he didn't. I'm not sure. Um, but, um, yes, Arthur, good. Manway seems to be doing the thing here. Right. This is not Manway stepping back and saying, Iluvatar, you take over this situation and Iluvatar doing the thing. Right. He called upon Iluvatar and took power and counsel from the maker and the fate and fashion of the world was changed. So he does take advice. Right. Um, you know, he uh, he he, you know, goes back and he uh, he confers with senior counsel and then. Uh, uh, charged with advice and uh, with both power and counsel from the maker. The fate and fashion of the world was changed, we say in the passive voice, but it does sound much more like Manway's making it. In any case, whether or not he's actually describing a different sequence, the difference of the wording here seems important, right? The dramatic laying down of his rulership of the world, we don't see that. We see, again, we see him consulting. Right? We see him calling upon Iluvatar. We don't see him laying down his lordship. Um, yeah, fell like stars into the dark is a really good line, Carita. I agree. Uh, Tarkalian the golden and bright Ilian, his queen, fell like stars into the dark. Uh, the gold and the silver uh, stars fall down into the nar- dark and perish out of all knowledge. Um yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, the ships sound like ships again, like boats again, right? As they're being drawn on the uh, drawn into the sea here. Um, I have never really understood the caves of the forgotten, the burying under fallen hills pretty ominous sounding, right? Uh, And uh, to be imprisoned in the caves of the Forgotten until the day of doom in the last battle is very impressive sounding. But I've never really been sure how to fit that into kind of anything, frankly. Um, Yeah, not the king. The king falls into the abyss. Um, But I agree. It is a really mythic touch. Um, so much so that I don't know how like to understand it other than in a general mythic sense. Um, but, um, but it's a pretty good line. Okay. We're getting towards the end of, uh, the last version of the early stuff here. Numenor being nigh to the East of the great rift was utterly thrown down and overwhelmed in the sea and its glory perished and only a remnant of all its people escaped the ruin of those days. Some by the command of Tarkalion, and some of their own will, because they still revered the gods and would not go with, go with war into the west, had remained behind when the fleet set sail, and they sat in their ships upon the east coast of the land, lest the issue of the war should be evil. 
Therefore, being protected for a while by the wall of their land, they avoided the draft of the sea, and many fled into the east, and came at length to the shores of Middle-earth. Small remnant of all the mighty people that had perished were those that came up out of the devouring sea upon the wings of the winds of wrath, and shorn were they of their pride and power of old. But to those that looked out from the seaward hills, and beheld their coming, riding upon the storm out of the mist and the darkness and the rumor of water, their black sails against the falling sun, terrible and strong they seemed, and the fear of the tall kings came into lands far from the sea. Um, okay, first thing to notice. Uh, notice the response to the arrogant name. Hey, you know, uh, our land isn't so young anymore, so let's not call it Vilia anymore. Let's call it Numenor, Westerness, right? Because we pretty much are the West. And then what happens? The rift opens where? Just to the West, right? Uh, they are, they are uh, Numenor is to the east of the Great Rift, right? So the Great Rift is just to the west of them, right? Uh, so there is a literal boundary line drawn. And guess what? Numenor is on the wrong side of it, right? Not quite far enough west after all. Now, Devorah, it sounds like quite a few people escaped. Now, it's a small remnant of all the mighty people. Right, So compared to the previous entire population of Numenor, it's only a very small remnant uh, that were saved. But it does sound like quite a few, right? I mean, there are some who are faithful and there are some who are uh, kingsmen, uh, but there does seem to be a, a kind of a uh, an uncertain and sort of miscellaneous number of them, doesn't it? Um yeah, I don't know what to do with that either, Devorah. There, this this version seems seems to have a lot of them. Now, remember, this is pre-Notion Club papers, right? Um, also, notice that it's uh, more of an escape and less of an exile here, right? Um, we don't have them being conveyed by the wicked wave, right? Uh, in the same way, I mean, we get some of the same imagery, but uh, but again, it's it's you know they are. Um, let's see. Oh yes, therefore, being protected for a while by the wall of their land, they avoided the draft of the sea, and many fled into the east and came at length. Right, so they're avoiding destruction and fleeing. Right, that's what's happening here. There isn't that same sense of like the wind of wrath conveys them out, right, and banishes them towards Middle Earth, like we were getting so powerfully uh, during the Notion Club papers. Okay. So then they settled down and they started living in Middle Earth, just like the men uh, who served Morgoth did earlier on, right? Yet all alike were filled with the desire of long life upon Earth, and the thought of death was heavy upon them. That is, all alike, meaning those who had been followers of the king and corrupted by Sauron, and those who had been faithful to the Valar, right? All of them, all alike, were filled with the desire of long life upon earth, and the thought of death was heavy upon them. There, remember, this is the, the death shadow from that uh, uh, Notion Club papers, uh, um, you know, transcript. Their fate had cast them east upon Middle-earth, but their hearts were st- still were westward. And they built mightier houses for their dead than for their living, and endowed their buried kings with unavailing treasure, for their wise men hoped still to discover the secret of, pro- pro- of prolonging life, and maybe of recalling it. 
Yet it is said that the span of their lives, which had of old been thrice that of lesser men, dwindled slowly, and they achieved only the art of preserving and corrupt the dead flesh of men. Wherefore the kingdoms of the western world became a place of tombs, and were filled with ghosts. And in the fantasy of their hearts, amid the confusion of legends concerning half-forgotten things that once had been, they imagined in their thought a land of shades, filled with the wraiths of the things that are upon the mortal earth, and many deemed that this land was in the west, and ruled by the gods, and in that shadow the dead should come, should come there, bearing with them the shadows of their possessions, who could in the body find the true west no more. Therefore, in after days, many would bury their dead in ships, setting them forth in pomp upon the sea by the west coasts of the ancient world. Um, okay, no, Bruce, this is pre, pre-Lord of the Rings, this, uh, this, uh, this, this text. Yeah, pre-Lord of the Rings. Specifically pre-Pyre of Denethor. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yes, Arthur, these are the, this is why we get the Viking funeral thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, Oh, no, uh, Tomas, sorry, Arpharazon does exist. He's Tarkalian, same thing. Um, Arpharazon is his, uh, uh, his Adonaic name. And remember, Adonaic hasn't been invented yet. So Tarkalian, uh, his elvish name, is still the only name that he has, right? Because you remember, he doesn't invent Anadune uh, until... Uh, sorry, Anadune. He doesn't... Uh, uh, invent Adonaiic until he's in the middle of writing the Notion Club papers, as we were looking at before. Uh, Devorah wants to know how incorrupt is incorrupt? Like, uh, uh, how, how incorrupt is indeed the dead flesh of men? Devorah, I, I've always kind of taken that to mean mummification, right? Uh, but, you know, maybe they beat the Egyptians on this one, you know? Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, there's certainly this kind of... Um, uh, this kind of like Egypto Norse thing going on here, where like we have mummies, but we also have funeral ships. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, now, Karina, I agree. All the ghosts and wraiths and tombs and things are uh, uh, is really appropriate for uh, entering the Halloween season, isn't it? But look at the theology there. That's the sort of, the, to me, the really fascinating thing there. In the fantasy of their hearts. So here's, the, here's what they're making, what they're imagining, right, in their hearts. Um, with, through their fixation on death. Amid the confusion of legends concerning half-forgotten things that once had been. So they retain confused legends of the land in the West. The, la- the undying land. Remember? Right? So we've got the undying land in the West, uh, which was... And remember, when I say remember, I mean remember when they were sending spies in to try to find the forbidden lore about how to become immortal? Right? Um, so they always thought, or rather once they became uh, unrestful, uh, they, uh, uh, they... they thought that the immortality of the elves and the Valar was a technique, right, which they were concealing and keeping to themselves. Um, and now even that idea, uh, which is already kind of a corrupt idea, 
has corrupted further, uh, so that now their memory of the undying lands in the West uh, has transformed in their in the fantasy of their own hearts into a land of shades filled with the wraiths of the things that are upon the mortal earth. Not the undying lands where those live who do not die as humans do, but rather the land of the dead, like which sounds a lot like Homer's Hades, basically. A land of shades filled with the wraiths of things that were upon the mortal earth. Um, and the gods rule the land of the dead, right? This place where the dead go, where the shades of men go. Um, and... Um, uh, so that's why you put your dead out on ships and you set them off with a lot of loot, uh, because then they'll have more loot when they get to the land of the dead and they'll be better off. Like, I don't know, get a better apartment or something. Um, so, you know, is this a prefiguring of Barrow dudes, Arthur? Um, uh, nah, no, not exactly, but we're getting warmer. Certainly, um, uh, the, the wraiths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds a little bit more like the halls of Mandos, Michelle, uh, a little bit, again, like a, a confused version of that too. Um, maybe you could say, Michelle, that it's kind of like, like they're sort of eliding those two things together. Um, they knew about the undying lands where those went who did not die. Uh, and maybe they also knew of a place where the souls of, of the, the, the departed went to remain at least for a time. Right. And they combined those two things. Um, possibly, possibly so. Okay. But there were some who lived in Middle-earth who still had this gift of sight where they could see down the straight road and could still see the Menotarma uh, and to Elven home beyond. But even the number of those that had the ancient sight, which is what he's referring to there, dwindled. And those that had it not and could not conceive it in their thought scorned the builders of towers and trusted to ships that sailed upon the water. But they came only to the lands of the new world and found them like to those of the old and subject to death. And they reported that the world was round. For upon the straight road only the gods could walk and only the ships of the elves could journey. For being straight... That road passed through the air of breath and flight and rose above it, and traversed Ilmen, in which no mortal flesh can endure. Whereas the surface of the earth was bent, and bent were the seas that lay upon it, and bent also were the heavy airs that were above them. Yet it is said that even of those Numenorians of old, who had the straight vision, there were some who did not comprehend this, and they were busy to contrive ships that should rise above the waters of the world, uh, and ooh, I think that's a typo there. Um, and uh, 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 I'm not sure what that word is. Uh, something to the imagined seas. But they achieved only ships that would sail in the air of breath. And these ships, flying, came also to the lands of the new world and to the east of the old world. And they reported that the world was round. Therefore, many abandoned the gods and put them out of their legends. But men of Middle-earth looked up with fear and wonder, seeing the Numenorians were content 
that this should be so. Um, so the Numenorians, the post-Numenorians, the descendants of Numenor and Middle-earth, they make flying ships. Definitely make flying ships. So air travel is inspired by the desire to find the straight path. But of course, the heavy airs that you fly through are also round. So it's all pointless. Oh, and hold to the imagined seas, right? That should rise above the waters of the world and hold to the imagined seas rather than the actual seas. Right. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure I agree. Uh, a couple of people are suggesting that this sounds sort of more scientific, more scientific and less mythic. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so because this is not talking about the eventual like development of 20th century air travel technology. Um, these are the Numenorians of old, uh, the post Numenorians of old anyway, who are making their airships. Um, and it's there's certainly um, it is very clear that the airship technology of the post Numenorean exiles um, did not do anything to enable the traveling on the straight road. Nor I think is there any reason to think that even um, a rocket would necessarily have done that. Right? Um, I don't think that we have here science driving myth away. The making of the airships is itself a mythic thing. I mean, notice that the Numenorians who fly the airships are being embraced as gods by the lesser mortals, right? They are becoming mythical figures themselves um, in their own failure, right? Uh, not only failure to achieve travel on the straight road, uh, but failure eventually even to remember about this. You know, they, what, what they began to do in an attempt to achieve the travel on the straight road became a replacement for that, and they ceased even to want to travel on the straight road, right? That's what we see with the Numenorean airships. And again, that seems to me no, uh, no less mythic uh, than the earlier stuff, Um Exactly, Stephen. Their failure proves that technology cannot accomplish this. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any indication that their airships are for mundane transportation? Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that, Marilyn. I, I mean, there's no evidence that they're, like, selling tickets or anything like that. But um, uh, but the men of Middle-earth are looking up with fear and wonder, seeing the Numenorean, uh, you know, seeing the Numenoreans, them when they're looking at them flying around, right, um, accepting that them as gods and the Numenorians are content that they should um, uh, do so, that is, view them as gods. Um, yeah, so um, you're right. The fact that they travel around the world leads them to abandon the gods and put them out of their legends. That is, they feel, the airship makers, feel that they have disproved the straight road theory, right? There is no land to the gods along a straight road. If, the, if so, we'd have found it with our, you know, snazzy airships. Um, but that, of course, isn't the, uh, you know, sort of the defeat of myth, right? Rather, it's 
the failure uh, of uh, of their technology. They're trying to replace. Um, you know, they are, you know, disregarding the gods, but that is not, uh, that is their own folly. That is their own poverty. And, and of course, it's ironic, right? Their own failure uh, to achieve the end becomes like their proof that it was never there in the first place, right? Um, okay. Um, yet, not all the hearts of the Numenorians were crooked. And knowledge of the days before the downfall and of the wisdom descended from the elf friends, their fathers, was long preserved among them. And the wisest among them taught that the fate of men was not bounded by the, by the round path, nor set forever upon the straight. For the, road ha- for the round has no end, but no escape. And the straight is true, but has an end within the world. And that is the fate of the elves. But the fate of men, they said, is neither round nor ended and is not complete within the world. But even the wisdom of the wise was filled with sorrow and regret, and they remembered bitterly how the ruin was brought about and the cutting off of men from their portion of the straight path. Therefore they avoided the shadow of Morgoth according to their power, and Sauron they held in hatred, and they assailed his temples and their servants, and there were wars among the mighty of Middle-earth, of which only the echoes now remain. Gosh, if only... You know, it'd be cool. It'd be really cool to get a little bit more story about, you know, some of those wars among the mighty of Middle Earth, right? When the the wise who remain to sail Sauron, whom they hold in hatred and his servants and their wars among the mighty in Middle Earth. It'd be really great to hear some of those echoes, wouldn't it? That sounds like a, you know, that sounds like a good idea for a book. I think maybe, I think maybe there's really, there could be a future in that. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. A TV could be a TV show, right? Hey, Arthur, somebody should tell Jeff Bezos about this. He might be interested. Um, uh, uh, Stephen was asking, uh, Lewis published The Abolition of Man in 1943. When was this written? Well before. Well before, like uh, 34, 35, something like that. So, yeah, yeah, a long time, long time before that. Um, yeah. Um, Anyway, um, the piece of mytho- of uh, mythology, well, mythology, theology, that we get there in that first paragraph is really interesting, right? So here's those. So we get all of these fantasies that they have, right? They, we get, you know, they're 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 forgetting what they knew of of you know the lore of the West and everything, uh, and confusing it with fantasies of their own hearts. Um, but we do get this one last piece of theology, which sounds a little more objective, or at least the narrator in his tone seems to kind of uh, give his endorsement to this. The other was just fantasy of, of their hearts, right? But not so this, uh, because we're introduced to this by being told that all of their hearts are not crooked, um, and some knowledge does descend, truly descend, rather than being confused and mingled with with fant- with fantasies. The wisest teach, the fate of men was not bounded by the round path nor set forever upon the straight. The round has no end, but no escape. And the straight is true, but has an end within the world. And that is the fate of the elves. 
but the fate of men is neither round nor ended and is not complete within the world. This is one of the... Um, this paragraph is the anticipation of another thing we're going to look at uh, in much more detail in Morgoth's Ring, one of my very favorite things that Tolkien wrote, uh, the Athrobeth. Um, we'll come back to a lot of this here, but this is... We have not really seen him before um, really thinking in these terms about like the pros and cons, right? The fate of men and the fate of elves. I mean, they were kind of there before. Um, uh, it's not that he never talked about them. They were an issue from the beginning. Um, but really thinking about like, what are the actual kind of pros and cons? Because, you know, not going to lie, it kind of always seemed like men were getting the shaft here, right? Um, that elves were kind of, you know, given all the good things and, uh, you know, humans kind of got the booby prize there. But uh, here we see the beginning of a real contemplation of those two things. Um, yeah. So, yes, even though you can't see Elven Home, it's still part of the world, James. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, it's still part of the world. Um, yeah. Um, oh, interesting, Arthur. Arthur's saying, okay, so the wise people, right, um, hold Sauron in hatred. And Arthur's like, when is holding something in hatred ever ended well uh, in Tolkien's Legendarium? Um It's a great question. Two things I would say here. Um, well, I'm start with the easier thing. The easier thing, I don't think that he is... In that first paragraph, all of the cues that the narrator gives us, um, the sort of contextual cues there that I was emphasizing, um, tell us that, like, the... Um, you know, what he's describing in that paragraph is wise and accurate, right? Less so the second paragraph. I don't see, Arthur, that we receive the same um, stamp of approval from the narrator upon the attitude of the men in the second paragraph, upon their hatred of Morgoth, uh, sorry, of Sauron. Um, but even the wisdom of the wise was filled with sorrow and regret, and they remembered bitterly how the ruin was brought about and the cutting off of men from their portion of the straight path. The bitterness of their memories, right? And even that, like, cutting off from their portion of the straight path, right? Like, we deserve part of the straight path, right? Like, why did you take the straight path away from us? So that kind of grudging of their fate, that uh, um, the bitterness... Um, even the sorrow and regret, sorrow and regret, a little bit more neutral than bitterness. Um, but still, I, I do think that we're being, this is a qualification here. There, there are several qualifications here. So I don't see the same kind of, uh, again, sort of universal approval of their attitude there at the end as we get at the beginning. Um, the second thing, there is a day, I don't want to get too deep into this. It's one thing to hate people and another thing to hate evil works. 
uh, and uh, it doesn't say they hate the servants of Sauron. They do hold Sauron himself in hatred. Um, that's probably not perfectly wise of them, and that's probably tinged with bitterness. Um, but uh, as was suggested earlier on, um, but I don't think it's a wholly bad thing either. But anyway, it's complicated. All right. Now we get to the, the drowning of Anadune. Uh, and having established that baseline, we now get the same story from a very different point of view. Before the coming of men, there were many powers that governed earth, and they were Erubaini, servants of God. And in the earliest recorded tongue, they were called Balai. Some were lesser and some greater. The mightiest and the chieftain of them all was Meliko. But long ago, even in the making of earth, he pondered evil. He became a rebel against Eru, desiring the whole world for his own and to have none above him. Therefore Manawe, his brother, endeavored to rule the earth and the powers according to the will of Eru, and Manawe dwelt in the west. But Meliko remained, dwelling in hiding in the north, and he worked evil, and he had the greater power, and the great lands were darkened. What's happening here? This is a rather different story, isn't it? What are we getting here? Same story with a different accent. Very different accent, right? We can, we of course get the clue here in the words, right? Erubeni, Balai, Meliko, and Manawe. Yeah, this is the human legend of creation. Based on what the humans know. Right? So the elves, you know, give the elf friends the true story, but not everybody has the true story, right? This is what it looks like from the human perspective. Before the coming of men is the conspicuous beginning of the story, right? That's our frame of reference. Um, and yeah, Marilyn, I remember the first time I read this, how confused I was. And I'm like, wait, who are the Balai again? They talk as if the elves and the Valar are the same. They're all kindred. They lump them all into the same category. The Erubaini, the servants of God. You know, everybody else. All those other folks. Right? The Balai. And Meliko is their chieftain. Clearly the most powerful among them. Right? Uh, and um, so he's obviously the most powerful, and he's got, a, he's got like a kid brother named Manawe. And Manawe rebels against him, right? He rebels against Eru. Manawe rebels against him. Uh, and, but Manawe's like retreated. So Manawe beats a tactical retreat into the west, but Meliko remained dwelling and hiding in the north, and he worked evil and had the greater power. And the great lands were darkened. I mean, who won that exchange, right? Well, if you're human and your entire framework is the great lands, right, uh, and the West is only a distant rumor, then, uh, yeah, like Manway ran away and left the field to Melico, 
who's clearly more powerful than he is. So, okay, I mean, you know, good for you. I guess you got away. Um, but um, you didn't do much good in the end, right? Because here's Melico doing all the stuff that he wants to do. But there were some of the fathers of men who repented, seeing the evil of King Melico, and their houses returned with sorrow to the allegiance of Eru. So the men do rebel. That's bad, right? They serve Melico and they shouldn't do that. Um, so we, we do get an initial fall of man here, right? But some repent. Their houses returned with sorrow to the allegiance of Eru, and they were befriended by the Balai, and they were called the Eruhil, the children of God. That is, the, you know, the good men were called that. And the Balai and the Eruhil made war on Melico, and for that time they destroyed his kingdom and threw, his, threw down his black throne. So that worked out. But Melico was not destroyed, and he went again for a while in hiding unseen by men. But his evil was still ever at work, and cruel kings and evil temples arose ever in the world, and the most part of mankind were their servants, and they made war on the Eruhil. And the Balai in grief withdrew ever further west, or if they did not so, they faded and became secret voices and shadows of the days of old, and the most part of the Eruhil followed them. Though it is said that some of these good men, simple folk, shepherds and the like, dwelt in the heart of the great lands. Okay, so, um, okay, so the war on Melico and the Balai on the Eruhil made war on Melico. And for that time, they destroyed his kingdom and threw down his black throne. What are we referring to here? What are we referring to? That's the War of Wrath. Absolutely. Now, so notice a couple things. First, this is a Great Lands perspective. This whole story is told from the point of view of the Great Lands, right? Now, this means two things. Thing number one, the most first and most obvious thing, is that this is ignorant of Valinor, right? I mean, what do we know of Valinor? Again, it's just like Manway lives somewhere the heck over there. And does it impact us? Apparently not, right? Um, you know, that that's... Uh, like the business of the Balai and, you know, like Manaway's little, uh, you know, rebel home, but whatever, doesn't affect us here in the Great Lands. But notice more importantly, well, not more importantly, in addition to the fact that we have um, a totally Great Lands that we don't know anything about Valinor, we're also not Beleriand focused either. Beleriand is only one small part of the Great Lands. Right. So, yeah, the stories of the elder days may be totally fixated on Beleriand. Why? Because that's where most of the elves are who are telling these stories. Right. Um, And of course, the last version that we got, this version of the fall of Numenor that we were just reading is an elvish perspective. Right. This is emphatically not an elvish perspective. And when you look at it from the big picture. What does the War of Wrath look like? From a Beleriandic standpoint, from a, an Alpha-centric standpoint, the War of Wrath is the big deal, the huge turning point, right? The end of the Elder Days. But, uh, but here, it was a blip, right? Um, what does Elrond say? Many fruitless victories? Yeah, it was one. The War of Wrath was a fruitless victory. Didn't, what happened? What was the net outcome of it? Not much. Again, not when you consider the whole continent, right? Not when you consider all of the great lands. 
His evil is still ever at work, and cruel kings and evil temples arose ever in the world, and the most part of mankind were their servants. So yeah, things were still pretty awful. In fact, for almost everybody. And remember, this is where the fall of Numenor begins to, and the lot of men was unhappy, right? Um, but, uh, you know, so, soon we just leave that behind and focus on our happy little island. Well, briefly, happy. Well, you know, for quite some time, but still. In the terms of the story, it's brief, right? But again, from the point of view of of uh, uh, of the Great Lands, it's not brief, right? Notice that they don't even buy the fact that there's no reference to Melico being thrust into outer darkness or anything like that. What's your evidence that he was? Oh, because everything got so much better, right? And the evil that he was wreaking on the land stopped? Oh, yeah, except it didn't, right? So, um, you know... Uh, they might have destroyed his kingdom and thrown down his black throne, but clearly he wasn't. De- he wasn't destroyed. Um, and although he went into hiding and is unseen by men, his evil is still at work. So, whatever. Um, and the and 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 what did the Balai do? They won, right? Big old victory for the Balai. No. What do they do when they win, right? When they overthrow the kingdom? They withdraw in grief ever further west. No help they were, right? Here we all are in the Great Lands, suffering uh, under the evil of Melico, still at work, cruel kings, evil temples all over the place, right? Can't, can't, can't walk five miles without tripping over an evil temple or a cruel tyrant or probably some ill-shapen beasts and demons and all that kind of thing, Right? And what are the Balai doing? What what are the what are the those you know great and shining ones? Some of which might be elves, and some of which might be Valar. What are they up to? Nothing. Running back away again, right? Fleeing into the west. That are fading. Even more useless. There are still Eruhil. There are still good men. Um. But what happened to most of them? Ran away ran away with the elves. And the most part of the Arrow Hill followed them. Yeah, they also ran away off into the west. Went off, never saw them again. Right? <laughs> what happened with them? It is said that some of these good men, simple folk, shepherds and the like, dwelt in the heart, in the heart of the great lands. Okay, so there are some good guys still around. And they're simple folk. They're shepherds. They're not kings. They're not lords. They're not generals. These are the remnant of the arrow heel, I guess. Okay. Yeah, Marilyn, isn't this an amazing reimagination of the legend, right? Um, this is a remarkable thing. I mean, like, I can't ever remember Tolkien doing anything like this, right? Really telling, like, the other side of the story like this. It's amazing. And it was by their ships that they were saved. For evil men multiplied in those days and pursued the Arrow Hill with hatred. And evil men inspired by the evil spirit of Melico, obviously still around, grew cunning and cruel in the arts of war and the making of many weapons. And the Arrow Hill were hard put to it to maintain any land in which to dwell. And in those dark days of fear and war, there arose a man from among the Arrow Hill, and his name was Aerendil the Sea Friend, for his daring upon the sea was great. And it came into his heart that he would build a ship greater than any that had yet been built. 
and that he would sail out into the deep water and come, maybe, to the land of Manoe, and there get help for his kinfolk. And he let build a great ship, and he called it Wingalote, the foam flower. In those dark days of fear and war, there arose a man among the Eruhil, and his name was Eärendil the sea friend. Eärendil is simply, simply a hero who rises from among them, right? And notice his, uh, notice his uh, task, right? His sailing into the west. There's no sense of, like, defying a ban or any kind of thing, right? He, what's he doing? He's going off to the west. So there is potential help in the west. What's uncertain is, A, whether you can get there, and B, if they're going to care when you do get there, right? Because they've been pretty much useless the whole time anyway, Manaway and all his followers, right? But, hey, it's something, right? And we got nothing. So Arendel the sea friend, is going gonna, is gonna to give it the best shot we've got. And so he's going to go off and see if he can, if he can find Manaway. And what a brave thing this is, right? Um, let's see if he can convince the, use, the largely useless Manaway uh, to uh, bestir himself and give some help to the people. But Arendel passed over the great sea and came to the blessed realm and spoke to Manaway. Man, he did it, right? The hero accomplished the heroic thing, rejected it once. And Manaway said that he had not now the power to war against Meliko, who moreover was the rightful governor of Earth, though his right might seem to have been destroyed by his rebellion, and that the governance of the Earth was now in the hands of... So we've... We, we're, he started. That's the direction he started this paragraph, right? Um, with Manway sort of spilling the beans and giving this theology, which is not um, not quite a one theology with our lot, you know. Um, but he changes it and says and says and said, "Okay, all right, sorry, never mind." Came to the blessed realm and spoke to Manway. Coming again, and Manway said that Eru had forbidden the Balai to make war by force for some reason, whatever sounds like a lame excuse. And that the earth was now in the hands of men to make or to mar. Oh, great. Right. So you just won't help because, right? It's our job now. Okay. Whatever. But because of their repentance and their fidelity, he would give, as was permitted to him, a land for the Eruhil to dwell in if they would. And that land was a mighty island in the midst of the sea. But Manaway would not permit Eärendil to return again amongst men since he had set foot in the, in the blessed realm, whereas yet no death had come. And he took the ship of Eärendil and filled it with silver flame and raised it above the world to sail in the sky, a marvel to behold. So Manaway says, yep, so, yeah, sorry, can't go, I've been forbidden to go to war. I, you know, my hands are tied in this matter. Um, um, I can give you some help. I can help you to run away, Right like follow the tried and true method of the West and run away into an island where the bad guys probably can't get to you. Um, So that's something, right? Oh, but I'm not going to let you go, right? Because you've transgressed. You've come into the West. So I can't let you go home. I have to banish you to the sky and never let you see your people again. Because, right? Because reasons. Um, Because you have brought death to the place where death never came before, right? Right? And that was inappropriate. So, you know, um, here's what's going to happen next. But remember, Eärendil, the hero, anticipated this. He told them to look out for a sign, right? If I succeed, I will, I will give you a sign. 
Um, yeah. Stephen says, is there insistence that Melico is still at large the result of Sauron's lies? No, it's the result of their own observations, right? I mean, does it look like a world in which Melico is gone? No, I mean, we don't know where he is, right? He's in hiding, apparently. Uh, but, you know, he, his fortress was thrown down and we don't see him building another one. But, you know, clearly he's still around. I mean, again, how have things changed? They haven't. Not for most of the men of Middle-earth, right? Okay, but now the men can run away. Oh, except for A. Arendel, who can't go home. Right. And they were under the tutelage of the Balai, and they took the language of the Balai and forsook their own. And they wrote many things of lore and beauty in that tongue in the high tide of their realm, of which but little is now remembered. And they became mighty in all crafts, so that if they had had the mind, they might easily have surpassed the evil kings of Middle-earth in the making of weapons and of war. Which was kind of the goal originally, right? But they were as yet men of peace. And of all arts, they were most eager in the craft of shipbuilding, and in voyaging was the chief feat and delight of their younger men. But the Balai as yet forbade them to sail westward out of sight of the western shores of Numenor. We've tightened up the ban a bit here, right? And the Numenorians were as yet content, though they did not fully understand the purpose of this ban. But the purpose was that the Arrow Hills should not be tempted to come to the Blessed Realm and there learn discontent, becoming enamored of the immortality of the Balai and the deathlessness of all things in their land. So we still do need to uh, establish a bit of a quarantine here, right? Um, it was inappropriate for A.R. Rendell to come here and we booted him up to the stars and then let him come home. But, um, um, but, um, but you guys, you guys can't come, right? Um, you know, if you're going to be, you could become a narrative, our immortality, right? And so we'll help, but, uh, but you've got to stay away. Um, they didn't fully understand the purpose of the ban. The peacefulness of the Numenorians is a good thing, Right? Probably. I mean, every other time we've heard it described, it's a good thing until, you know, it ceases to be peaceful. But in this context, it begins to seem a little strange. Or rather, again, given the whole frame of this account, it kind of feels to me a little bit uncertain, right? I mean, they were seeking a way to be rescued from the evil men. Now, they did get a very, really nice island to run away to, right? Um, uh, you know, following uh, the Balai template, but um, they, they, you know, they have the strength now. They could go back to Middle Earth and defeat all those evil things and deliver all of the rest of the race of men who are living under whose lot is unhappy, right? But they're not doing it. Instead, they're like, "Oh no, we have our nice little isolationist island here. We're just like the Balai now, right? We've got our own little mini West." Right? Which is fine. And we can be content and just gaze at our own navels because who cares about the Great Lands anymore? Right? Just like those said who came before us. I mean, maybe I'm overplaying that, but does it kind of feel to any of you that way? Right? Like that there's this kind of implicit, um, almost like they've been corrupted by the Valar. Right. Uh, From within this frame. Not that the Valar are being depicted as evil. They're not being depicted as evil. Um, But they have been depicted as weak from the very beginning. Right. 
which is what is leading me to question whether or not within the the narrative frame of this account, whether we're supposed to think that the peacefulness of the Numenorians is an entirely good thing, right? For as yet, the Balai were permitted by Eru to maintain upon earth some isle or shore on the western land still untrodden. It is not known for certain where, for Eärendil alone of men came ever thither and never again returned. An abiding place, an earthly paradise, and a memorial of that which might have been had not men turned to Melico. And the Numenorians named that land Avalonde, the haven of the gods. For at times when all the air was clear and the sun was in the east, they could descry as seemed them, as them seemed, a city white shining on a distant shore and great harbors and a tower, but only so when their own western haven, and Dunia of Numenor, was low upon the skyline, and they dared not break the ban and sail further west. But to Numenor the Avalai came ever and anon, the children and lesser ones of the deathless folk. Sometimes in oarless boats, sometimes as birds flying, sometimes in other fair shapes, and they loved the Numenorians. The Avalai, those who live in Avalonde, right? Now, are the Balai the Valar and the uh, Avalai the elves? No, I mean, sort of, but no. Um, the uh, the Avalai are the children and lesser ones of the deathless folk. The deathless folk, it's, this is still clearly the category which encompasses the Valar and the elves together. The elves are just the children and the lesser ones of the deathless folks. Um, and, and yeah, the Avalai have wings and oarless boats. So they're just like, mm, put, 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 and they come over to Numenor in their oarless boats. Okay, presumably they don't go put, 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 but, but anyway, they're not rowing and they're not sailing. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes they're flying, not the boats, the people, the elves, the, you know, Avalai, uh, like they can change themselves into birds and other fair shapes. Like, I don't know what. Um, and anyway, so they're cool and they're fun and they come visiting and everything. Um, but notice that place where they live in. Ooh, that place where they live in is not just the deathless land where the deathless ones dwell. This is like the ultimate home of human beings, Right. Because that place where they live, Avalonde, the haven of the gods, right? Um, they are permitted by Eru to maintain upon earth, upon some isle or shore of the western land still untrodden. I mean, who knows exactly where it is or anything, whatever. But it's an earthly paradise. It's a memorial of that which might have been had not men turned to Melico, right? So... The Great Lands basically got wrecked because, you know, the fall of man and stuff. And that was, you know, our bad and everything, whatever. But um, but the Avalai have paradise lost. It's over there. Right? The paradise that we might have had. Again, notice the difference. That's a very significant difference in the legend there. They're not looking at Elvenholm and saying, this is their place. It's not our place. This is our place, Numenor. That's their place, right? And they're not so... Later on, when, they, when their hearts become restless, they're not going to start saying, I wish we could live with them in their place, too. I wish that their place could become our place. Instead, they're looking over it from the beginning, saying, that's what our place should have been, right? That's the ultimate vision of our home, 
which we have, which is, was taken away from us, right, ages ago. Come to think of it, out of no fault of our own, I mean, not mine, like I didn't do it, right? You know, I mean, maybe we lost our paradise because somebody a long time ago did something bad, but like I didn't do it. Right. So why should I be kept out of that paradise? Right. It's like I totally do deserve to be there. I mean, after all, here we are in our little quasi human almost paradise. Right. It's like our, you know, junior league, like the minor league paradise over here. Like, why do we get the cut rate paradise here and they get the ultimate paradise over there? And then they're all like, "Ooh, but don't come to like, you know, um, the major league paradise over here. Like you've got to you've got to stay where you are just because, right? Um, I mean, that doesn't seem fair, really, from the very beginning. Um, yeah, Devore really is being compared to Eden uh, in this legend. Yet in the end, all this bliss and betterment turned to evil again, and men fell, as it is said, a second time. For there arose a second manifestation of the power of darkness upon earth, and whether that was but a form of the ancient, or one of his old servants that waxed to new strength, is not known. Either Melico came back, or, you know, one of Melico's dudes, you know, like, whatever, doesn't really matter. And this evil thing was called by many names, but the Arrow Hill named him Sauron, and men of Middle-earth, when they dared to speak his name at all, named him mostly Zigur the Great. And he made himself a great king in the midst of the earth, and was at first well-seeming and just, and his rule was of benefit to all men in the needs of their body, for he made them rich, whoso would serve him. But those who would not were driven out into the waste places. Yet Zigur desired, as Melico before, to be both a king over all kings and as a god to men. And slowly his power moved north and south and ever westward, and he heard of the coming of the Eruhil, and he was wroth. And he plotted in his heart how he might destroy Numenor. Okay, so here's the rising of Sauron, who is, you know, it's perfectly advantageous to follow Sauron as long as you'll obey him, right? He'll make you rich. Yeah. Beneficial, his rule, largely. Because after all, remember, who else is paying attention to the Great Lands? Nobody, right? Then we get a debate, right? The unrest of Numenor is proceeding apace. For why should the Avali, uh, the Avalai sit in peace unending there, said they, while we must die and go we know not whither, leaving our own home? For the fault was not ours in the beginning. It wasn't my fault. And is not the author of evil, Melico himself, one of the, uh, one of the, Avali, uh, one of the Avalai? Hey, wait, it's not my fault. Come to think of it, it's your fault. Yeah. And the Avalai, knowing what was said and seeing the cloud of evil grow, were grieved, and they came less often to Numenor. And those that came spoke earnestly to the Eruhil and tried to teach them of the fashion and fate of the world, saying that the world was round, and that if they sailed into the utmost west, yet would they but come back again to the east, and so to the places of their setting out, and the world would seem to them but a prison. Tolkien is writing the round world into the story from the beginning here. Right? This text is written at the, you know, during or after the Notion Club papers. 
let us try to explain some things to you people, to you humans, right? Didn't you think when we started that paragraph, you know, when you when you first read that paragraph, that they're going to start talking about the fates of men and the fates of elves, right? Oh, like Arrow gives his gifts to everybody. That's totally where it looked like we were headed. But no, that's not where he's headed. The reason for the ban, the reason you can't sell any sail any further west is if you keep sailing west, you're going to discover that the world is round and you're going to come back again to the east. And then where will you be? Back where you started. And the whole world will seem to you a prison. We were trying to spare you that. We're trying to conceal the fact that the world is round? Whoa. Crazy. Crazy. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep you up forever. It's getting real late. We'll pick up with this next time. Um, Not bad. We got through, what, like 20 slides tonight? That's pretty good. Um... Uh, there's more, but uh, but we'll get there. Let's we'll keep working through this radical rethinking of this story, right? Um, as for the first time, having conceived the Numenor story as a uh, as a sequel to the story of the to the Elvish stories of the Elder Days, we are now he now sits down to write a totally human version uh, of uh, the story. Right. Um, A real different perspective in a way that he has never, ever done before. Fascinating stuff. All right. More on this next time. See you guys next Wednesday. Um, uh, Don't forget, please, during our fundraising campaign, if you haven't yet made your donation to Signum University, I hope you will. Um, And if you do, don't forget to enter our drawing for uh, uh, for the end of the campaign. Um, uh, Send your email to donate at signumu.org. Thanks, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.